Hello everyone, Mike the DM here again. Another quick historical piece. The party just received a book of history on the Kingdom of Faroe, and this, plus what the party already knows, is what we have here. Enjoy! History of the Realm of Faro. The exact timing of the settling of the great valley that would become the Kingdom of Faro is lost to the mists of time. Whether it was seafarers that entered the valley through its delta, mountaineers that crossed the surrounding peaks through some long-lost pass, nomads that crossed the great desert to enter where the present-day Porta Magnum now stands, or perhaps the reverse, with the people of Faro radiating out to populate the surrounding lands, no one can say. However it happened, the fertile central valley became dotted with small settlements. Along the banks of the Fluvia Magnum, the great central river that meandered down the valley, trading towns grew into cities, while family farms ringed the valley outskirts, where shepherds would herd their flocks into the high pastures for summer. As inevitably happens, fiefdoms, under some chieftain, priestess, or master of trade, formed, and sometimes split, combined, or clashed with one another as the whims of politics and competition for resources required. In this fashion, centuries passed, while thirteen great houses grew to prominence to control the whole of the central valley and the surrounding foothills. Despite the houses striving against each other, and the occasional appearance of a dragon or other calamity notwithstanding, life was peaceful and prosperous. It would remain thus until the day of invasion, when one hand would unite the whole kingdom under a new banner. Before that time, half-believed stories had filtered down from shepherds, trappers, and other mountain travelers of another people that inhabited the high peaks to the southeast. Unlike the humans, halflings, dwarves, and gnomes, these people were reptilian in nature, could breathe fire and lightning, and claimed to be descended from dragons. Barbarians, they dressed in animal skins and lived a semi-nomadic life in the mountains. Stories out of the past told of raids by these barbarians that would slay families, caravans, and whole towns. But these events, if true, had faded into a dim memory and had become merely tales to terrify naughty children with. Behave or the barbarians will come and get you in the night. On the day of invasion, though, these children's tales came boiling out of the mountains to overrun the foothills and threaten the great houses of the southeast and by extension the whole of the fertile valley. The first reports came from the outskirts of the Sleepy Foothills trading city of Porta Magnum. A few bedraggled field workers had appeared at the walls of the city crying for aid. They were dirty, hungry, and wounded. 
they told an almost unbelievable tale of hordes of barbarians rampaging through the fields and flocks, burning and slaying as they went. Within hours a sortie of cavalry was dispatched. Within a day they were back, missing many of their number. They confirmed that barbarians numbering in the thousands were indeed overrunning the fields and slaying all that stood in their way. Messengers were dispatched to all the great cities and panicked gripped the valley. Port of Magnum, situated as it was on the edge of the wild, was a walled city and could hope to repel the invaders. Of the cities in the Campo Magno, though, only the largest were ever walled, and even those, fattened as they were with the spoils of rich trade and farming, had spilled out far beyond their protection. If the invaders should turn north and west, the slaughter could be enormous. Even the cities of the far-removed northwest of the valley felt their cold touch of fear. Into this breach stepped Conant, son of Turi, first son of the ruler of Magnamanu. He marshaled a force from the city to confront the invaders. Confident of victory, they were sorely surprised. Conant's forces, despite being superior in numbers, cavalry, armor, and tactics, were soundly defeated. Those that survived the encounter described the horde whipping itself into a frenzy and charging their lines, heedless of danger. Before them they breathed fire, lightning, cold, acid, and poison gas. Blows they dealt, the survivors said, felt like ten men delivered them. Likewise, they told tales of a barbarian warrior fighting on even after receiving wounds which surely should have killed him. Conan broke off the fight, but neither fled in retreat nor charged foolishly back in. Instead, wisely, he used his forces to make hit-and-run attacks on the flanks of the invaders, drawing the force further from the fertile valley and from Porta Magnum to a relatively uninhabited area between Porta Magnum and the keep of Civitas Cataracta. For weeks he employed this tactic. Meanwhile, stories of his plight and his heroic crusade went far and wide and soldiers flocked to his aid from all over the valley, and his ranks grew until he commanded a vast army. It was this army that he drew up around the base of the rise that would one day become Excolberium Colis. Bordered on two sides by a vast river, he arranged his forces on a high ground to face the boiling horde. This time, the result was far different. Though still a grim affair, the army of Conant smashed the invaders. The barbarians used to their tormentors breaking and fleeing every time they were attacked, and now finding their prey apparently unable to retreat any more, pressed the attack and fell into the trap the Conant had set for them. With an army at his command, and holding the high ground, Conant finally had the barbarians at the disadvantage. His lines held, and his flanks encircled the invaders to complete the slaughter. After the jaws of the trap had closed, the few remaining dragon men were sent fleeing into the mountains to return to the legends they had once been. When the dust settled, Conant found that in addition to all the other changes the invasion had produced, the political reality of the Campo Magno had radically changed as well. He was now hailed as a hero of the age. He commanded a powerful army. Druids and priests proclaimed him blessed by the gods. He was already well connected by family and trade to most of the cities in the south and central Campo Magno. When he was offered and accepted a bride from one of the great cities of the northwest, his influence became complete, and he was quickly proclaimed Conant I, King of Campo Magno. Thus began the first golden age of the kingdom of Campo Magno. Over the next four centuries, the kingdom, 
where the central government to oversee trade and mediate disputes, grew in peace and prosperity. The capital eventually settled in the mouth of the delta, where the great river met the sea, and Kelium Sedes became a powerful trading port and the largest city in the kingdom. It was in the reign of Oren I that everything changed. In that time, elves appeared. At first greeted with wary suspicion, quickly the residents of Campo Magno became convinced that the elves came in peace and with goodwill, and they were soon welcomed into the world. This began the Second Golden Age, and every seat of power and elvish advisor was welcomed. Elves brought their crafting and agricultural knowledge and created revolutions in those areas. Most of all, they brought magic. Heretofore unknown, the elves' biggest revolution was the introduction of magic. As soon as they were certain the new races of Campo Magno could master the subtleties of this new art, they dove right in. Soon magical schools dotted the kingdom, and the benefits of this new art were felt far and wide. For the elvish society, this was also a revolution. Elves pair bond for life in a custom that served them well over the uncounted eons of their history. With the opening of the gates of Far, as they called it, new possibilities were realized. The new races of Far had ephemeral lives compared to the almost millennia-long lifespan of the elves. Adventurous elves could journey to Far, take a mate, and pair with them during their short existence. With the humans, they could even have children and raise a family, or two, or three. When they wished to retire to a more sedate life, they could then return to fairy and bond with another elf for the rest of their time. In this way, they could experience love, life, and family several times in their lifetimes instead of once. This cycle became quite fashionable after the discovery of Far. While this was the beginning of the Second Golden Age, it was also the herald of its end and the end of the kingdom of Campo Magno. The trouble crept in on cat's paws, as it often does, and not even the wisest of the elvish advisors could see where these revolutions in society would eventually end. It took several generations for the races of Far to learn to use magic effectively, and several more for them to master it, and for great mages on par with the elves to appear. Great works of magic benefited all the citizens of Campo Magno, but in every cart there is a bad apple, and as with apples, one bad one and spoil the lot. Thus it was with the mages of Far. From time to time a magician would appear that wished not to benefit the greater society with his or her ability, but rather to use magic selfishly for their own gain. These bad apples were quickly rooted out by the elves in their schools, but as the races of Far mastered the arts of magic and started their own schools, this became more difficult and the situation soon became too large to control. The elves struggled against the tide that they had created, removing those that threatened the stability of the realm, but it soon became too large even for them. In the eighth year of the reign of Leslie II, the end began. It was in that year that Egan the Red deposed the rightful rulers of the grand city of Exodus and declared himself ruler of all of its lands. The trouble had been apparent for some time, if you knew to look for it but few connected the isolated events that were happening to the greater danger at hand. For some time, aberrant beasts, results of unwise magical experiments, began to appear in the dark places of the world. Grand mages, originally included for their knowledge and wisdom, started making up larger and larger portions of the councils of the great cities. Miscreant mages, 
previously removed by the elves before they became known, started to be heard of by their reputations as they slipped through the elvish nets. Unfortunately, by the time all these problems became manifest, it was already too late. With the seizure of Exodus, the dam burst. The great mages, no longer content to merely advise the city councils, moved themselves to claim their part of the Campo Magno. Some may have done it for benevolent reasons, to protect the people under their care, but for most, it was not so. The magicians were the new power in the Campo, and it was their time to ascend. The crown moved against these actors, of course, but with terrible results. Officials and lesser nobles interested in saving their own necks traitorously threw in their lot with the new rulers against the crown. And these forces, backed by the wizards that could rain hellfire down from the heavens and often backed up by armies of aberrant magical creatures, held the forces of the king at bay. Similarly, the elves tried to act, but it was like fighting a hydra. They would cut one head off, only to have two grow in its place. Eventually, the situation grew completely out of control. The elves, fearing the contagion, would spread back to Fairy, recalled all of their people, and sealed the gates to Far. Some few elves remained, too in love with the people or the lands of Far to be parted. But most elves, with their long view of history, and trading decades with their kin for centuries of further life, chose to leave. Many bitter tears were shed as families were sundered apart. Other families chose and hold to emigrate to Fairy, and even to this day, some small percentage of the residents of Fairy can claim some human ancestry. Those that have obvious human traits are called the Sundered, and are regarded with respect as a sad reminder of this sorrowful event. Meanwhile, the great mages became restless of ruling only their fiefdoms. Success breeds greater ambition, and so they turned on each other. War raged from one end of the valley to the other, and whole cities were raised. The forces of the royal city could do nothing but circle their forces around the city for defense, and watch helplessly as the burnt and broken detritus of battle floated down the great river past them to the sea. Eventually war came even to the capital, and even though the defense was staunch and grim, the reign of Leslie II ended in fire and death. What brought about the final destruction of the Great Valley, no one can say. It may have been a last cataclysmic spell that finished the valley, or simply the weight of all the damaging magic that had been rained down upon it. Either way, when all was said and done, the Vale itself had been permanently scarred and ruined, its great cities thrown down, and its fertile lands pounded to dust. A dust, as slowly over time, claimed the valley to bury the remains of the old kingdom under a sea of sand, the Mare Arenosum. Likewise, the great mages disappeared. Whether they all killed one another, died of old age, fled to realms of their own making, or some other fate, no one knows. But after the destruction of the Campo Magno, they too disappeared under the dust like the cities they had fought over. Those that survived faced a grim future. All government, trade, and agriculture had been wiped out. If not for the five foothill baronies, the remaining residents of the Campo Magno might have been relegated to a state of permanent barbarism. Those baronies, too rustic and out of the way, clinging to life in the foothills and the mountains, were too rural to be considered a prize by the combatants, and were thus spared. In these islands of culture, civilization still held and slowly spread back into the world ringing the mare. Life slowly settled into a new normalcy. 
The barons, justifiably wary of each other's ambitions and weary of death and destruction, eschewed a new monarchy in favor of a council of the five heads of state, and agreed to meet in council throughout the year to debate the policies of the kingdom that was now a kingdom in name only. Over time, having long forgotten the name of the old kingdom, the residents latched on to the elven name of Far, and so the new kingdom became known as the Kingdom of Perot. Much later, the descendants of the elves, wanting to see what their forebears had wrought, cracked open the gates to Far. Seeing not all was in ruins, they filtered back into the world and began teaching magic again, this time with their strength. <laughs>